Welcome to Many Parts, One Body. We are Danny Patrick, a queer seminarian. And I am Paul Holford, a not-so-queer pastor. Talking on topics of faith, inclusion, community, you know, the simple things. Each Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, we will bring you a new episode. Join us as we dive in headfirst. Just a note that today's episode does contain topics of a sexual nature, including discussion of rape. Welcome back to Many Parts, One Body. I'm Paul. And I'm Danny. We are on to episode five. We are out of Genesis now, and we are moving on to some other areas of the Bible which are commonly used as clobber passages. Um, In today's episode, we'll be tackling some scriptures from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Those are books that you can read if you are wanting to get some sleep and you want to just fall asleep because they can be quite dry, but um, they do consider contain some of the clobber passages. Um, both of the texts bring about issues of what we can and cannot do or should or shouldn't do to be considered right with God. Um, so uh, one of the first ones that we're going to pull out uh, that's commonly used uh, as a clobber passage, is Leviticus 18.22, um, which is, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination, which is that classic word that we're always hearing, abomination. Um, so Leviticus is often gone to in non-affirming theology in regards to man not lying with man as they would do with a woman. However, it it's one of those where we're picking and, choos- picking and choosing from a plethora of laws, um, because within uh, Leviticus, as we go through the book, there's so many different laws uh, in there. You know, there's not not mixing cloth, uh, not eating pork, um, not having intercourse with uh, a menstruating woman. Um, but in this case, non-affirming theology is just choosing this one thing out of this list of laws and saying, this is the one that still applies to us now. These other ones only applied to... Israel back in the day. Um, And again, just like what we talked about uh, last week, um, it's suiting a specific narrative by just taking this one piece. Um, But ultimately, when we look at it within context, these these laws were intended only for Israel, um, really in an attempt to set them apart from the other cultures and faiths at the time because there were so many other faiths um, and, and things going on at the time, this was a way to, to separate them and say, this is how we as a people, as, as Israelites and, and followers of God, this is how we are to act and to be. Um, and that is, is how it was meant to be. Um, and it doesn't really translate into our culture today. Um, and that's kind of how we're we're looking at it. When we just pick one out and say, okay, well, now this one's going to translate into our society now, but all these rests we can do away with, that doesn't really bode well, all in all. Well, because I think a lot of people like bacon-wrapped shrimp, <laughs> and that would be considered an abomination in, according to Leviticus as well. And it's, I don't think it's, it's only the picking and choosing. It's I was talking to a church member about this recently, how... At such a young age, we're taught the meaning of some of these stories before we even read them ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we're discussing um, what we discussed last week with Sodom and Gomorrah, where they said from day one, even when they were younger, 
they were always taught that Sodom and Gomorrah was about homosexuality, even before they explored the text themselves. And after they started exploring the text themselves, they saw the kind of disconnect that we pointed out last week. And I feel like with Leviticus, we've done this, uh, Christian culture has done the same thing. They've taught you something and then told you, now apply that to this text instead of allowing the text to speak for itself. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, the um, text in Leviticus and Deuteronomy is really pointing out to um, it, the Israelites of how to live with the Canaanites around them, how to not become like the Canaanites. And um, the context of Leviticus 18 is all about the warnings about how not to become like the others, but also how not to um, bring the Egyptian mindsets into their establishment as a, a nation. So again, you're with you pointing out that these are rules for the Israelites and that we're only picking and choosing out of context one to use it as a clobber passage over and over again. See, inside of both the Canaanite worship and Egyptian worship, they had this um, god that they worshipped called Ishtar who was included in the fertility rites. It was kind of like the fertility god that they would worship. And inside of that worship during that time were um, sexual rituals that took place. Um, these rituals were thought to bring about the blessing of Ishtar if you wanted... Um, not only yourself or your family to have more kids, but if you wanted your cows and your camels to have more kids, you went to Ishtar, the, the goddess of fertility. And in doing so, you would enter into the temple and inside of the temple, there were these priests called Asinus, which I know I did probably did not pronounce correctly because, yeah, no. Who knows how to pronounce them? I'm just going to pronounce it from now on with confidence. Um, inside the temple that were thought to have special powers and almost like lucky charms, like if you rub them the right way, that you would get it. Uh, you get what you want from Ishtar. And the ultimate gift that you could give to a temple priest or a temple prostitute was the, the essence of life or in their view, semen. And inside of Ishtar's worship, you had, again, what I want to emphasize as non-consensual relationships between a priest and another man. And when, I, when Leviticus is being written, he's writing about how you don't want to bring that kind of worship also into your faith. The non-consensual relationships that were brought from the Canaanites and from the Egyptians, the site of worship was not part of worshiping Yahweh. There was nothing about non-consensual relationships that's part of the way that Yahweh wanted people to interact with each other. You also have the other view here as well, or the other part of this where inside of war, when you conquered a nation, you would conquer a nation and then you would go and you would rape the people there to show your dominance over somebody else. So in Leviticus, when they're talking about a man should not lie uh, with another man like they lie with a woman, with this understanding that it's saying inside of your faith, inside of following Yahweh, we do not have this temple prostitution that is more, more than likely during that time between two men and it was non-consensual. And we also do not go and conquer the way that, that the Canaanites conquer and the way that the rest of the world conquers and go in and... Um, rape those that we have victory over. Um, I think it's a lot, this, this 
command, for lack of a better word, is a lot deeper than the surface level that the non-affirming theologians just pull out of it and say, look, this is going to be the thing that we can use to back up our bigotry. And I think studying scripture, one of the most important things is understanding the context and the historical context that it was written in. It might be hard for people to hear this because so often we've been told this is the way that you read it. And if this is the way that we read it, then we have to also then include the other abominations that we should be following as well. Um, But if we look at this as do not be like the Canaanites, the Canaanites do X, Y, and Z in their worship and in their war, be better than. Do not have non-consensual relationships with people. And the big thing that people also bring about with this is that there's no mention of women being with women. Yeah. There's nothing there. Um, again, a lot of people will bring up to the fact of, you know, the erasure of women in the Bible. Women are not thought of. Um, really, it, it's kind of looking at it in the way of just, um, you know, we think about how, you know, procreation was a big thing in the Bible. You know, procreative sex is important. So if you're thinking about, you know, man lying with man, woman lying with women, that they're kind of... You're not if a woman's lying with a woman, you're not wasting any procreative, yeah. um, you know, life giving, uh, you know, semen, semen or anything or anything like that. <laughs> I'm losing words for some reason, um, but you're not, and none of that is is you know, seed isn't spilled, nothing like that. Um, so there's that aspect isn't there, um, but also you know, it's just the fact that they're not thought of. Uh, in that way. And the big thing as well is with with the men being thought of as a woman uh, was one of the biggest insults that could be. Um, and that's why in those those uh, war scenarios, the raping of men was such a big thing, was that domination of making a man be like a woman yep. um, was such a, a big thing in, those, in that society. Um, and that's uh, something that is important to note as well when it comes down to that. And another thing in the Leviticus one where it only mentions man and a man, it doesn't mention woman and a a woman relationship. Inside the law, there are lots of laws that the women also had to abide by Mm -hmm. about having to leave camp when they were menstruating. Of all these different laws that it seems out of place not to mention both sides of this. And I think the reason, again, they're not mentioned both sides of this is because that temple worship wasn't a female and female interaction. Because in war, it wasn't a female dominating another female. It was specifically non-consensual relationships between two men. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I, I say it over and over again, but the key part to all of this is the non-consensual. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, definitely one to, to take another look at, a deeper dive into in regards to Leviticus. Um, but then uh, Deuteron- Deuteronomy also gives us uh, something to, uh, to chew on. So Deuteronomy 22.5 states, A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. So in this section, this verse, uh, in many, uh, for many in non-affirming theology, they'll take this to mean that those who are transgender 
are gender non-conforming. Um, they cannot express themselves uh, since they cannot wear another gender's clothing um, or someone who, um, you know, say like a drag performer or something like that. Um, they would say, you know, this is an abomination. You cannot do that. Um, the Bible says this is wrong. Um, but again, we have to look at context. Why was this said? Um, so looking at context, scholars have kind of, they've dove into what was going on during that time period. And actually, um, what was happening at the time is um, males were actually dressing up in women's clothing and sneaking into women's spaces um, to solicit heterosexual immorality. Um, so that so this kind of this kind of edict, this call out was to say, hey, don't be doing this um, to because we want to stop this this sexual immorality that's occurring between same sex couples. Um, we don't want this to be occurring. Um, I, I don't mean to correct you, but you, you, you said same sex. I think you meant. Oh, I meant. Yeah, I did. See, yeah. look at. I got a one track man. Uh, I meant. Uh, the, the heterosexual yeah, morality. Heterosexual. I just, yeah. You, thanks for correcting me. But yeah. Um, yeah, so, so the opposite sex couples. And then uh, another common practice uh, was actually for in pagan cultures. And this kind of goes along with um, what was happening um, in uh, Leviticus, where they were trying to keep things separate from the pagan worship that was going around them. Um, is uh, in pagan culture, women would wear armor and men would wear women's clothing. Um, so they wanted to again separate out from those practices and say, "Hey, we need to, you know, not." be a part of this other cultural phenomenon around us and separate from this. Um, and uh, so it wasn't something necessarily to do with gender identity or gender expression. It was more so to step away from these actions and these, um, these other religious aspects of another um, religion around them or culture around them. Um, now, I've talked about him a lot. Austin Hartke is a trans theologian. Um, we've talked about him in prior episodes. He does give a wonderful talk uh, on YouTube, which we'll link in the show notes um, for the Reformation Project. It's called The Bible and Transgender Christians. And he covers these verses in further depth, talks about uh, Joan of Arc and some others uh, who um, kind of, it goes right along the lines of this especially this part in Deuteronomy, I definitely recommend giving the talk a listen. If you have a chance, I think it's about an hour or so, um, but it's definitely worth a listen. It gives a lot more information. Um, but it's, it's, it's certainly something that, again, when you look at the context, it makes a lot more sense. Um, but if you're looking at it at face value and you're just plucking it out and saying, okay, I have an idea, I have an intent with this, yeah, absolutely. You could say, okay, yeah, this makes sense that this would be like, bam, no, you can't wear, you know, Paul, you cannot wear this dress. It says it's an abomination. And even that statement there reads in, reads our culture into this, into it. Because in our culture, and this is looking at things as binary, and we're trying mm -hmm. to stay away from looking at things binary. We want to look at gender and sexuality in a more of a fluid way. Mm -hmm. But in the cultural binary, men don't wear dresses and women wear dresses, 
that's implying our culture into that text. Right. Because they didn't dress as we dress today. Right. And it's also reading our binary into this as well. Mm -hmm. Because it says a woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man. Are we reading our definition of man and woman as we culturally have established now into the biblical text? Right. Where when we talk a little bit more about um, Jewish understanding of, of gender and fluidity and stuff like that, they didn't view it as binary as we culturally in the West do today. Mm-hmm. And then when we think about, um, like, for example, like when we came over, you know, from, um, you know, from Europe over uh, here into the U.S., you know, when and we encountered, you know, Native American populations, the there are so many different ways in which they encounter gender and gender expression and how that didn't jive with what uh, European Christianity thought it was. And there was so much strife and, and issues with that because it's so different with different cultures of how we acknowledge gender and how we express gender and gender roles and what, what we can do. And I think that's really important. So how could we say, okay, well, you brought this up earlier, which you're being funny, but for example, you know, Scotland men wear kilts. Yeah. Yay. You know, that's, and that's a standard male apparel. Now here, you know, some people would scoff and say, well, that's a skirt. Skirts are for girls. That's, William Wallace wore this kilt. <laughs> you know, it, each culture is going to, you know, they decide on what's going to be for what. And it, it just, it's so hard to pinpoint. And especially to go back and say, okay, well, the Bible says this. How could it intend for this to translate across these this many years, this many cultures to determine that, okay, this is a man's clothing, this is a woman's clothing, and never shall the two cross over. And in using the humorous idea of the kilt, because it's probably not as offensive to people as we talk about kilts, is this idea that inside of American Western culture, like you said, it would be, might be considered a skirt, but you go over to Scotland, Scotland, and it is a male's, a man wears a kilt. Mm-hmm. And it's socially acceptable inside of their society and the, the way they've constructed it. And to say that Western American understanding of, of what is culturally appropriate for people to wear, and even transporting that over to Scotland, you see friction happening already. Mm-hmm. And... A couple of phrases that you use that I just see if we can flesh out a little bit before we come to an end here. You said gender expression. Mm-hmm. Um, for myself and for those who are listening, when you say gender expression, what do you what do you have behind that? What is its meaning? Yeah, gender expression is the way in which you um, express your gender. So that can be the way in which you dress, the way that you cut your hair, the way that you do or don't do your makeup, um, ultimately the outward way in which you show your gender. Inside of the culture that you live in. in inside yeah. the culture that you live in, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, so for example, I am non-binary, transmasculine, so I present primarily masculine. So I'm wearing, you know, I have men's pants, I have a men's sweatshirt, I have a very masculine haircut, um, so that's the way that I present. Um, but I have, you know, I have gender fluid friends who, uh, which means that their gender can change throughout the day, uh, or throughout, you know, you know, 
the week. It just depends, um, which means one day they might be very feminine and have on a dress and wear makeup, and the next day they're wearing a suit and a tie. It just, it can be very different for each person, but their and expression. And that's how they present themselves. Yes, that's how that's they, they present, present themselves. Because yes. then you're good, and we don't need to get into to this today because the notes are over. Um, <laughs> but this idea that I think some people have inside a Christian circles is that gender expression that the, the they find it hard to break apart gender and sexuality or gender and sex mm-hmm. and there's that that hard conversation that I've had with many people that I fully haven't wrapped my mind around because being a, a male who presents as a male I've never had that run in with somebody and I had to explain my presentation of myself mm-hmm. um which is a privilege more than anything else. Um, but trying to, for me, I can intellectually, intellectually and emotionally understand the difference between gender and sex. But I have a very hard time explaining it. And there's where mystery, uh, we can go biblical, but it's all mystery and all this, but there, there, there needs to be a, for me, I feel like, I can understand and I can I can understand and, and I know what people are saying, but how I express it to somebody else I find very I'm in my infancy in that. Mm-hmm. So that's not part of the notes either. And that's perfectly fine. I think the important thing is knowing where you're at and continuing to learn. And going forward, I think that's the most important part. And I think everybody, anybody that's willing to learn and to grow and to to do that is is great. I think it's it, if you're not willing to to do the work, that's where there's then there's a problem at that point. Yeah, and I think part of this podcast we discussed at the beginning was we're going to be talking to people in different parts of their understanding or journey mm-hmm. or or acceptance of, of, of people in the LGBTQ plus community. And what I hear you saying is it's the journey that everybody has to be at the same place at the same time, but there's that willingness to walk and to learn mm-hmm. and to affirm even though I might not understand. Right, right. Uh, yeah, because I, I mean, I, I can't expect everyone to fully understand everything. Um, I don't, I, I, I still don't fully understand everything. I, I, all the time, um, you know, people will be like, oh, well, you know, you're, you know, you're the queer one. Well, yes, I am. But that doesn't mean I know all queer things. Um, but I will try my best. And if I don't know the answer, then I will defer to someone else or to a resource or something like that. Um, so that's, that's the biggest thing. I think as long as we're open to, to learning and to growing and to criticism, um, and uh, and constructive criticism. I think kind constructive criticism is important. Um, I think some people, when they hear criticism, get a little scared. Um, but I think criticism is helpful as long as it's done in a kind and loving way. Um, and I think most people, most people are going to do so in a kind and loving way, especially if especially from my point of view, if I want you around and I want you in my life, I'm going to give you constructive criticism because I want you to do better and I want to be comfortable around you. So I'm going to do what I can so that I can be comfortable around you. 
and and to teach you better ways to interact with me, it's going to be easier if I just gently prod you in the right direction. <laughs> um, and so that's that's the way that I, I kind of approach things. And um, the, the big thing for me is just, you know, I give everyone respect and I let everyone ask questions. If it's a question that's not a respectful question, I my first thing is to say, thank you for asking a question. That's probably not a question you'll want to ask again. <laughs> and then if I feel comfortable enough to answer it, I'll answer it. If not, I'll say, that's just not a question. So there, there's the, that line that the people say there's no dumb question, but there can be. There there's, can be. There's no. There's questions that are not respectful. Yes. Respectful. Yeah, and, and that's the thing is, and, and, there, and, and there are people out there like myself that are saying, hey, ask me anything, but that doesn't mean you'll always get an answer. Yeah. That's the, the thing is that doesn't mean you're always privileged to an answer, but you can ask questions. Yeah. Um, but you have to be mindful that not everyone's going to give you answers. Not everyone's going to be open to questions. So before you go rattling off questions to every person that you find out in the LGBTQ community, um, you know, see, you know, see first if they're open to questions. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of resources out there if you have questions or concerns. Um, if if you are, uh, you know, looking for local information, there's always your local libraries. There's always um, bookstores. If you're local in the uh, area um, in uh, Michigan, um, there is a great bookstore called Betty's Pages in Lowell, Michigan, that uh, does a, a wonderful job with uh, books on inclusion and things like that. Um, they would be uh, a great resource, but you can also find some locally as well um, in your local area too. So that kind of brings us to the end of our episode today. Um, I was looking for something on Instagram and I'm not going to find it at this moment, but it was from the 1946 movie project that they're doing. Yes. And one of the posts that they made recently that kind of struck a chord with me, it was, and I'm going to try and summarize the best I can. It was just a picture with some words on it that said, um, my sexuality is not my brokenness. And I think one of the things with affirming theology that needs to be expressed or needs to be almost yelled from the mountaintops is people in the LGBTQ plus community reflect the image of God as much as anybody who is in a heterosexual relationship. And that their sexuality, their attraction, their presentation, their as you said, um, gender, um, gender expression is not, an, is not evidence of their brokenness, but evidence of their divinity as much as my presentation is evidence of God's divinity as well. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm at that spot, like theologically, and it's just I'd like to understand everything. I like to know everything. Mm -hmm. And I, it's the knowledge that's catching up with my understanding of what God has done or what God, who God created. So um, we want to thank you for joining us for episode five and for all the other episodes you've listened to. And we will catch you guys next week. See you next week. <laughs>